We're going to read from God's Word now, um, Isaiah chapter 39 to chapter 40, verse 11. That's on page 599 of the Black Church Bibles. As I said, we're continuing our series on Isaiah tonight, and this is the first of two readings for tonight. So that's chapter 39 of Isaiah to verse 11 of chapter 40. At that time, Merodach Baladan, the son of Baladan, king of Babylon, sent envoys with letters and a present to Hezekiah, for he heard that he had been sick and had recovered. And Hezekiah welcomed him gladly, and he showed him his treasure house, the silver, the gold, the spices, the precious oil, his whole armory, all that was found in his storehouses. There was nothing in his house or in all his realm that Hezekiah did not show them. Then Isaiah the prophet came to King Hezekiah and said to him, What do these men say? And where did they come to you? From where did they come to you? Hezekiah said, They have come to me from a far country, from Babylon. He said, What have they seen in your house? Hezekiah answered, they have seen all that is in my house. There is nothing in my storehouses that I did not show them. Then Isaiah said to Hezekiah, Hear the word of the Lord of hosts. Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away. And they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. Then Hezekiah said to Isaiah, The word of the Lord that you have spoken is good. For he thought, There will be peace and security in my days. Comfort, comfort my people, says your God. Speak tenderly to Jerusalem and cry to her that her warfare is ended, that her iniquity is pardoned, as she has received from the Lord's hand double for all her sins. A voice cries, In the wilderness prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Every valley shall be lifted up, and every mountain and hill be made low, and the uneven ground shall become level, and the rough places a plain. And the glory of the Lord shall be revealed, and all flesh shall see it together. For the mouth of the Lord has spoken. A voice says, cry. And I say, what shall I cry? All flesh is grass, and all its beauty like the flower of the field. The grass withers, the flower fades when the breath of the Lord blows on it. Surely the people are grass. The grass withers, the flower fades, but the word of our Lord will stand forever. Go on up to a high mountain, O Zion, herald of good news. Lift up your voice with strength, O Jerusalem, herald of good news. Lift it up, fear not. Say to the cities of Judah, Behold your God. Behold, the Lord God comes with might, and his arm rules for him. Behold, his reward is with him, and his recompense before him. He will tend his flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom. 
and gently leads those that are with young. Amen. Well, good evening. <clears throat> my name's Johnny. I'd like to add my welcome to Davies. I'm part of the staff team here, and uh, I'm an elder at Chalmers. And it is really great to have you with us this evening, especially if you're new. Uh, this is perhaps your first time around Chalmers, or even if you're new to Edinburgh um, altogether. Please do stay around after the service is finished. There'll be tea and coffee, and it'll be really great to get to know you a little bit better. Um, I'm, as Davy mentioned, I'm going to complete our reading for this evening. Um, so if you have one of the black church Bibles, you're hopefully handed one of those on your way in. If you could open that again to page 600, that'd be very, very helpful. And we'll read again. We'll read from verse 12. So it's Isaiah chapter 40 and verse 12. <clears throat> Who has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span? enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in scales and the hills in a balance. Who has measured the spirit of the Lord? Or what man shows his, him his counsel? Whom did he consult? And who made him understand? Who taught him the path of justice and taught him knowledge and showed him the way of understanding? Behold, the nations are like a drop from a bucket, and are accounted as the dust on the scales. Behold, he takes up the coastlands like fine dust. Lebanon would not suffice for fuel, nor are its beasts enough for a burnt offering. All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? An idol. A craftsman casts it, and a goldsmith overlays it with gold and casts for it silver chains. He who is too impoverished for an offering chooses wood that will not rot. He seeks out a skillful craftsman to set up an idol that will not move. Do you not know? Do you not hear? Has it not been told you from the beginning? Have you not understood from the foundations of the earth? It is he who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers. He stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Scarcely are they planted, scarcely sown, scarcely has their stem taken root in the earth when he blows on them and they wither, and the tempest carries them off like stubble. To whom then will you compare me that I should be like him, says the Holy One? Lift up your eyes on high and see who created these. He who brings out their host by number, calling them all by name, by the greatness of his might. And because he is strong in power, not one is missing. Why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? Have you not known? Have you not heard? The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. He gives power to the faint, and to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youths shall faint and be weary, and young men shall fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. 
They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. Amen. This is the word of the Lord. Before we come to look at it more closely together, let's pray together. Let's pray. The psalmist writes, Deal bountifully with your servant, that I may live and keep your word. Open my eyes, that I may behold wondrous things out of your law. We ask this evening, our speaking God, that you would open our eyes, that through your word being read and preached, you would speak to us, showing us those wondrous things. We ask these things in your precious name. Amen. Well, I'd like to begin by asking you a question. How do you decide whether to trust a promise or not? How do you decide whether to trust a promise or not? That might sound like a bit of an odd question to ask, but the truth is we don't treat every promise in the same way, do we? Not all promises are created equal. I guess that all of us have been in a situation where someone's promised to do something for us, but we've been less than convinced they'll actually follow through on it. And there may be a number of different and and potentially even valid uh, reasons for that kind of skepticism. Perhaps the promiser doesn't actually seem all that committed to keeping their word. You get the sense that they're kind of just telling you what you want to hear. Because after all, words cost nothing, do they? But the effort to follow through on those words, well, that's a bit different. Or perhaps you think that they won't actually be able to keep their promise. They're overstretching themselves. So, for example, if this afternoon your car were to have broken down, and after this evening's surface, you and I are chatting over a cup of coffee, and I make a promise to you that you will get to work tomorrow morning because I'm going to come round to your house first thing, I'm going to fix your car and I'm going to do it first thing in the morning. Well, you might take that promise with a pinch of salt, not because I don't want to help you, not because I don't have good intentions, but because I know nothing about cars. As an aside, if I ever do promise to fix your car, I wouldn't bank anything on that kind of promise. I might want to keep my word, and I might really want to help you, but no matter how hard I try, I just don't have the skills or the resources to keep that promise. All of us have experience of making a judgment call about whether to trust a promise or not. And it's just that kind of judgment call that we're going to be spending our time thinking about together this evening. Because in Isaiah chapter 40, God's people have to decide whether they can trust a promise or not. And for God's people, it's not about whether you can get to work in time or not. It's a much bigger deal than that. Now, we started our series on Isaiah 40 to 55 last week. And if you were here for Roger's talk last Sunday evening or you've caught up online since, he valiantly took us through the first 39 chapters of the book in a little over half an hour. And we saw that the main thread running through the whole of Isaiah's prophecy is that it is a tale of two cities. Isaiah paints the picture of Jerusalem, of the city where God's people live, as being broken and rotten. 
It's rife with systemic injustice, with corruption, with moral failure, and all of that stuff's broadcast in vivid technicolor throughout the book. But Isaiah tells us that those are all just symptoms of a much bigger disease. And we read about that disease right at the beginning of the book. Chapter 1, verse 2, Isaiah comes right out the blocks, recounting that God says this. God says, children have I reared and brought up, but they have rebelled against me. Right at the heart of the problem is the rebellion of God's people against their God. It's a relational thing. It's like children rebelling against a loving father. It's corrupt, it's rotten, but at its root, it's rebellious. That's the first city. But as well as watching Isaiah paint the picture of a corrupt and rotten people, throughout the book, we also see snapshots of God's promise to clean up the city and to clean up its people, to make a new Jerusalem, a Jerusalem 2.0. So Rog took us last week to chapter 1, verse 26, where we read, and I will restore your judges as at the first and your counselors as at the beginning. Afterwards, you shall be called the city of righteousness, the faithful city. And that's quite a shift, isn't it? From a rebellious city, right out the blocks, chapter 1, verse 2, to chapter 1, verse 26, a righteous city, from a faithless Jerusalem to a faithful Jerusalem. That's what God promises his people. He promises that he will renew them. And it sounds wonderful, But the big question that echoes throughout the rest of the book and the cliffhanger that Roger left us with last week is this. How? How can God take this rebellious, corrupt, rotten city and turn them into a a faithful and righteous city, a corrupt people into a faithful people? It looks like such a huge ask for God. How can he take us from city one to city two? That's a huge question that hangs over the whole book, and we'll see that fleshed out over the next few weeks from 40 to 55. But as Davi read chapter nine of Isaiah a few minutes ago, I wonder if you noticed that things get a bit more complicated still. Look with me at chapter 39, verse six. Helpful if you have that open in front of you just now. Chapter 39, verse 6. This is God speaking to the king of God's people, a guy called Hezekiah. He says this, Behold, the days are coming when all that is in your house and that which your fathers have stored up till this day shall be carried to Babylon. Nothing shall be left, says the Lord. And some of your own sons who will come from you, whom you will father, shall be taken away, and they shall be eunuchs in the palace of the king of Babylon. God tells his people that Jerusalem is going to be invaded, going to be ransacked, and our people are going to be taken away, away from Jerusalem and into Babylon in exile. Now, can you see why that might be a problem, given all we've just thought about? Because it looked like the job of turning this old, corrupt city into a new, clean city was going to be hard enough as it was. But we reach chapter 39, and it looks like the final nail in the coffin. The people and their stuff are going to be carried off. Nothing shall be left, says Isaiah. So by the end of chapter 39, 
God's promise to renew his people, well, it's never looked less promising. And it's at that point we wade into chapter 40, which is where we're going to spend the bulk of our time this evening. Because in Isaiah 40, Isaiah is casting his gaze forward to what things will be like once all that he's promised in chapter 39 has happened. And he's writing chapter 40 because these are the words that God's people are going to need to know when they're in exile, when they're in Babylon. And we see exactly what God's people think of his promise to take them from that old city to that new city as they wait in Babylon, as they sit in Babylon, as things look so unlikely. Read verse 27 with me of chapter 40. This is the pastoral heart of the section we're going to be looking at together this evening. Verse 27, why do you say, O Jacob, and speak, O Israel, my way is hidden from the Lord, and my right is disregarded by my God? God's people don't trust that God's going to do what he's promised to do. And notice that they give two reasons for that kind of skepticism. Firstly, we read in verse 27, they're thinking to themselves, my way is hidden from the Lord. Even if God wanted to make good on that promise, well, he can't really see what's going on with us anymore. Then secondly, they say that, well, they must have been disregarded by their God. God's either forgotten his people or he's just ignoring them. And on the face of it, we might be able to understand why they feel like they've been abandoned. Because as they sit in Babylon, things look hopeless. And it looks like God's either powerless to make good on his promise, or that given their constant rebellion against him, he's just lost interest in them. He's ignoring them. So take a step back. Remember that big question that hangs over the whole book. How can God rescue his people? How can he take us from Jerusalem 1 to Jerusalem 2.0, from the old city to the new city? Well, in chapter 40, that question gets narrower still. The question isn't how can God do it? The question is, can God do it at all? And we'll see how Isaiah addresses that question under the second heading on your service sheets this evening. You were hopefully handed one of these on your way in, and it might be helpful for you to have that in front of you as we work through the passage tonight. So the second heading, which is, can God rescue his waiting people? Now, you may or may not have seen the movie The Lion King says something about how cultured and relevant I am when my references come from 20-year-old Disney movies. But in the film, there's a scene where the king, who's a lion, funnily enough, and he's called Mufasa, he's showing his son, a a little lion cub, Simba, he's showing him all of his kingdom, the kingdom that Simba will one day inherit. And he stands on top of a cliff at dawn and looks out over the kingdom. And he says to Simba, Simba, everything that the light touches is our kingdom. And Simba notices a patch of land covered by shadow. He says, wow! But what about that shadowy place? His father responds, well, that's, that's beyond our borders. You must never go there. The kingdom's vast. Dominion stretches for almost as far as the eye could see. But it was limited. There were places that were beyond their borders. And in Isaiah 40, that's what God's people think of God's dominion, his control. Think again on that verse 27. 
They say, my way is hidden from the Lord. And ask yourself the question, what kind of God can't see where his people are? Well, it's a limited God, isn't it? He may be big. He may even have been king over Jerusalem, but he can't see us here in Babylon. And what makes them think that God's limited, that he can't see them? Well, because in the fight between God's people and their enemies, Babylon, who do you think won? Well, Babylon did. That's why his people are sitting in Babylon. So just what does that say about their God? If he really was God, there's no way he would have let this happen. No way he would have allowed his people to be humiliated and the city destroyed. He may well be well-intentioned, but he's just clearly not strong enough. But what's God's response to that critique, to the suggestion that he's limited, that he can't even see his people where they are? We read the verse a few moments ago, chapter 40, verse 12. Look with me again. Who has measured the waters in the hollows of his hand and marked off the heavens with a span, enclosed the dust of the earth in a measure, and weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance? Over the summertime, my wife Fiona and one-year-old son Finlay and I went to the beach, and it's the first time that Finn had been to a beach, and he'd been old enough to be aware of what was going on around and about him. And apart from spending most of our time trying to stop Finn from eating literally all of the sand on the seashore, it was fun to have a bit of a paddle and a first splash in the sea. But as we scooped up water into our hands to splash each other, the sea level didn't drop. We didn't even make the slightest dent on the volume of water. That's not the case with God, says Isaiah. He has measured the waters in the hollow of his hand. Not only that, God has weighed the mountains in the scales and the hills in a balance. Ben Nevis, the Himalayas, like weighing out flour on a set of scales to our God. So what's the point? Well, we're meant to be struck by the sheer scale of the creator God. It gives us a sense of perspective, doesn't it? If I can't make the slightest dent on the sea level hard as I try, what does that say about how big and majestic and huge God is? He is huge and I am tiny. And as we read through these verses a few minutes ago, we may well feel like we're standing at the edge of the Grand Canyon or sitting in a boat bobbing on the Pacific. Tiny, insignificant. But it's worth noticing that in this lengthy CV we get for God, this resume from verses 12 to 26, Isaiah isn't just saying God's huge and we are tiny, so know your place. He is saying that, but he takes his argument a step further than that. Read with me, verse 18. To whom then will you liken God? Or what likeness compare with him? Then read on later, verse 25. God himself issues that same challenge. To whom then will you compare me? That I should be like him, says the Holy One. The point isn't just that God's great, so we should feel tiny. The point is that God is beyond comparing with anything else you could try and compare him to. 
And in case we miss that point, that God is incomparable, Isaiah fleshes it out during these verses. Read verse 17. He says this, All the nations are as nothing before him. They are accounted by him as less than nothing and emptiness. God is huge, yes, but the point isn't that he's big and wants you to know it. It's that the nations of the earth are tiny compared to him. Verse 15, they're like a drop from a bucket. Then into verse 22. It is he, that's God, who sits above the circle of the earth, and its inhabitants are like grasshoppers, who stretches out the heavens like a curtain and spreads them like a tent to dwell in, who brings princes to nothing and makes the rulers of the earth as emptiness. Compared to God, people, people like you and me, are like grasshoppers. And more than that, the kind of people that we would view as being powerful, as being of worth in in our culture, people like princes and rulers, leaders, well, God brings them to nothing. Now, all of that might have seemed pretty obvious to you as you read through those verses a few moments ago. It wasn't to me, I'll confess, as I first read through them, but it might have been obvious to you. But it's worth taking a moment to ask why Isaiah includes this argument about the incomparable greatness of God right here. Why do God's people think he is limited in Isaiah 40? Well, it's because from where they're sitting, hundreds of miles from home, languishing in Babylon, while Jerusalem is in ruins, it looks as though Babylon have won. And compared to the might of Babylon, God looks weak and limited. That's why God's response is, verse 15, really, it's what you think. Compared to me, Babylon's like a drop from a bucket. Verse 24, compared to me, their rulers are like grass. If I want to, I'll make them wither. Kings and nations are not a stumbling block to God doing what God's going to do. That's the point. So remember that question we asked ourselves a few minutes ago. Can God rescue his people? Can he keep his promise to turn the old corrupt city into a new clean city, even when it looks like Babylon have won, even when that promise looks so unpromising? Well, the answer comes back with a thundering yes. The incomparable God, verses 12 to 26, the incomparable God is God of the universe. Of course he hasn't been defeated by something like Babylon. Of course he can rescue his people. Now that was God's answer to his people in the time of Isaiah. But what does any of that mean for us today? For those of us who would call ourselves Christians, we stand at a very different point in salvation history from God's people in Isaiah. So we can't just copy and paste, not quite copy and paste Isaiah 40 directly onto our own situation. But even though we're at a different point in salvation history from God's people in Isaiah, we may find ourselves expressing a similar kind of concern that we read about in verse 27. See, at Chalmers, we are often reminded by Robin and Rogers, uh, Roger of quite how bleak things are in our country, spiritually speaking. The preaching team do that deliberately, 
gives, they give us kind of facts and figures about the church in Scotland today. And they do that because we're a buoyant church on a Sunday. It might be easy to think that things are going well as we're surrounded by other Christians. But it keeps us grounded in the spiritual reality of the world around us. And as we look out on Scotland, or we look out on the UK, or we look out on the EU or the world, do we ever start to wonder whether God really is in control or whether he's been beaten? As, for example, we see a movement like secularism swamping our culture in Scotland. The objective truth is that Christianity looks like it's on the wane in our country. And secularism, atheism, humanism, all the isms, they look like they're winning. In fact, they may well look like they've won. They're the mainstream now, and the Orthodox Evangelical Christian Church, well, a bit of a side thought. Do you ever feel that? So if that's the case, what does that say about the God whose church this is? Are we backing a loser? Can God even see what's going on in the world today? Well, the answer comes thundering back from Isaiah chapter 40. Chammer's church, the nations are like a drop from a bucket. He brings princes to nothing. If he blows on them, they'll wither. So to whom or to what will you compare him? To secularism? To new atheism? Our God is incomparable. He is the God of all things. Now, he may not bring about the spiritual renewal of our country in our lifetimes, and in fact, he hasn't promised to do that at all. But that does not change who he is. And we are not backing a loser. We are following the God of the universe. Now, it is worth saying at this point that if you're here this evening and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian, that this is the God Christians worship. You might think as you look around the world today, you look around your country today, that Christianity is outdated or it's a sinking ship. But I hope you can see from how God describes himself that we don't worship a parochial God. We don't worship a God of the 1950s or the 1940s. This God describes himself as the creator God of the whole universe. So whatever you might think of him, he is not to be trifled with. Now, that's a rebuke to God's people in Isaiah 40, and it might well be a rebuke to us today too. But can you also see how it's a wonderful comfort? Because what he's saying is that his people aren't hidden from his sight. He isn't limited. He doesn't look out over the world and see shadowy patches that he doesn't have control over. So, do not be anxious. Don't be dismayed. Our God is incomparable. So that was our first question this evening. Can God rescue his people? And the answer that comes back in Isaiah 40 is that yes, of course he can. But it still leaves another question outstanding because weakness or limitedness is not the only accusation thrown at God in Isaiah 40, is it? Read again, verse 27. My way is hidden from the Lord and my right is disregarded by my God. 
So as well as asking whether God really is God, whether he can keep his promise, whether he can bring his people from old corrupt Jerusalem into a new Jerusalem, the other question God's people are asking implicitly is whether God will keep his promise. Not just can he, but will he? And we'll look at that for the rest of our time together this evening. Next heading on your service sheet is, Will God Rescue His People? So God's people think that exile to Babylon, if, if God's strong enough to save us, if he can save us, well, it must mean that God's disregarding us. It must mean that he's ignoring us. And you could see why they'd reach that conclusion as they sit in Babylon, hundreds of miles from home, and God's promise to bring his people into a renewed Jerusalem looks like it's dead in the water. But look at the response gives to that critique in verse 28. He, as God, gives power to the faint. And to him who has no might, he increases strength. Even youth shall faint and be weary, and young men fall exhausted. But they who wait for the Lord shall renew their strength. They shall mount up with wings like eagles. They shall run and not be weary. They shall walk and not be faint. God's making a commitment to those who wait on him. Notice that's who the commitment's made to. It's not just a catch-all commitment to everyone. It's a commitment to those who will wait on him, those who will trust on him, even when things look bleak. And they are wonderful verses, aren't they? I suspect very familiar verses to some of us. Some of us may well even have the verses etched onto a tea towel or a fridge magnet knocking around in our kitchen somewhere. But it's worth asking, what do they actually mean? And what are they doing here? We shall run and not be weary, walk and not be faint. What's that got to do with God's promise to remake Jerusalem? We were given some hints throughout chapter 40. We saw this last week, but I'll just drip into a little bit. Look back at verse 3 for a moment. A voice cries in the wilderness, prepare the way of the Lord. Make straight in the desert a highway for our God. Someone's going to build a motorway across a desert. That's what it sounds like on the face of it. Sounds perhaps a bit odd on its own, but fair enough. Look on to verse 11 with me. He, that's God, will tend the flock like a shepherd. He will gather the lambs in his arms. He will carry them in his bosom and gently lead those that are with young. Now again, do you see the common thread between those two verses? There's a great deal of traveling language. Verse 3, a highway across the desert. Verse 11, God is carrying people like lambs in his arms. He's gently leading those who are with young. And then we move on to what we've just looked at in verse 28. We shall run and not be weary, walk and not be faint. So what's going on? Well, remember where God's people are in Isaiah 40. They're in Babylon. They're hundreds of miles away from home. And what God's doing is not just a catch-all, encouraging comment. <laughs> You'll run and not be weary. He's restating his promise to bring his people home. A return journey from Babylon 
to a new Jerusalem. It may seem like a bit of a stretch to you. It might seem like I'm, I'm um, reading more into that than there is. But we do get other snapshots through chapter 40 to help us see that that's what's going on. So, verse 2, this journey will involve the pardon of people's iniquity, the pardon of people's uncleanness. That's the promise, isn't it? It's from an unclean Jerusalem to a clean Jerusalem, an unclean people to a clean people. Then verse 9, it is good news. It's worth shouting about from a mountaintop, says Isaiah. We'll see all of that being fleshed out more fully in the weeks to come, what that looks like about how God will do this. But what he's saying in verse 28 is that he will give his people strength, his waiting people, his energy for that very specific journey, the journey back from Babylon to a new Jerusalem. So again, we ask that question that we've been thinking about this evening. Will God keep his promise to his people? We know that he can, verse 12 to 26, but will he keep his promise to his people? Unlikely as it looks from verse 27 as they sit in Babylon. Well, verse 28 to verse 31, again, scream yes. God will apply all of the incomparable strength all of the incomparable greatness that we've seen in verses 12 to 26, he will use that strength and greatness to strengthen and carry his people on that journey to a new Jerusalem. So can God do it? Verses 12 to 26, yes. Will God do it? Verses 28 to 31, yes. But again, as we draw to a close, we have to ask ourselves the question, so what? That might have been reassuring news for God's people all those years ago, while they were hundreds of miles from home. But what difference does it make to any of us sat in 21st century Edinburgh? Well, it's worth knowing for a start that I'm going to give a spoiler here. God's people did return from Babylon. And they did remake a new Jerusalem. God did bring them home. But the promises in Isaiah didn't end in Isaiah. They didn't even end in the Old Testament. They point further forward than that. And as God's people standing at this side of the cross of Jesus, we're caught up in the same promises what do I mean by that? Well, heaven is not the end goal for us as Christians. If that's a surprise to you, I'm sorry, but heaven is not the end goal for us as Christians. The end goal that the Bible gives us is a new Jerusalem where God will have recreated everything that is broken in this fallen world and make it new. And we read about that right at the end of the Bible in chapter 21 of Revelation. And we actually read it all the way through the Bible. And again here in Isaiah. But even if we know that that's what God has promised us as Christians, that he will bring us home to a new Jerusalem, he will make all things right, we may still be tempted to wonder whether God still really can see us. Whether he really does care about us. What might make us feel like that? Well, for God's people in Isaiah, it was a strain of being awaiting people where the promise looked unlikely. For us, 
It may also be the strain of being a waiting people in a broken world where a new creation seems very unlikely. We've seen and felt that all too keenly as a church family over these past few months, haven't we? Death and illness, serious illness, mental illness, relational difficulties. Those are just a few of the issues that have been spoken about and prayed about. Never mind the countless other battles faced by Christians in the Chalmers Church family day by day. How can you be sure that what God has promised us as Christians, this new Jerusalem, is really going to come to pass? Can you trust the God who has brought you safe thus far to safely lead you home? Well, Isaiah 40 shows us the everlasting, creating, unfainting, unwearying, unsearchable, powerful, inexhaustible, incomparable God of the universe. And that God is fiercely committed to bringing his waiting people home, to keeping his promise. So take comfort, Christian. You can trust him as you wait. He will strengthen you as you wait. He will carry you as you wait. Isn't that a wonderful comfort? But you may be here this evening and you wouldn't describe yourself as a Christian. And what we've been thinking about there for a moment or two about the brokenness of our world, about death, about illness, about suffering, that chimes, that, that rings true with you, with, with your own life and your own situation. But it's just life, you might think. We've just got to get on with it. Well, Isaiah does point forward to this place where there will be no more suffering, no more crying, no more death, a new Jerusalem. And he tells us of a God who is committed to bringing his people to that new Jerusalem. And his people are not just good upstanding Christians, pillars of the community. They're people who have acknowledged that like the city in Isaiah chapter 1, they're rebellious against God, like children against a loving father. Now, if you've never acknowledged that or seen that in your own life, then I would urge you to think on that this evening. If this is true, if the new Jerusalem is really something that we look forward to as Christians, then if you're not a Christian, does that not make you want some of that? They who wait for the Lord, says Isaiah, shall renew their strength. And so, people of God, we wait. But we can trust that even when life makes us feel as though this promise seems unlikely, the incomparable God can, is committed to, and will carry us as he leads us safely home. Let's pray. The Lord is the everlasting God, the creator of the ends of the earth. He does not faint or grow weary. His understanding is unsearchable. Lord God, we thank and praise you that you are everlasting, unfainting, 
unwearying. Help us to see your godness, your power over all things. And Father, for those of us who are weary, discouraged by the world around us, looking so far from you, or discouraged by the brokenness of our own lives and experience, would you help us? Would you strengthen us with your strength? Would you bring us safely home, carry us, we pray, to the new Jerusalem that you have promised to those of us who wait on you? We ask these things for our joy and for your glory. Amen.